Before we get started, a quick disclosure. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. And with that, hello and welcome to the Range of Capital podcast. This is a 15-minute long podcast and the clock starts now. I'm Andrew Walker, a portfolio manager at Rangely. With me as always are my co-host and Rangely's founder, Kristen Muth. It is Wednesday, May 11th, and today we're going to be talking about a coming change to market indexes that could be a big tailwind for REITs. And But we're going to start it off by talking about a way to buy the Atlanta Braves. So, Chris, why don't you kick it off by uh, talking about the opportunity to buy the Braves maybe at a discount? Well, in my experience, almost every major league baseball owner is rich. And I want to be richer, so I figure you should own a baseball team. And <laughs> I don't know if there's some correlation, causation issues at play here, but a high percentage of them are billionaires. And uh, here's an opportunity with uh, far less uh, uh, capital to put up to be a major league owner. Yep. So why don't I give a little bit of background to the situation? So John Malone is one of our favorite investors, capital allocators. We've mentioned him multiple times on this podcast. Uh, he is he's built a lot of his career on one theory: find a way to pay as little in taxes as possible. And one way you can avoid paying taxes when you build huge successful businesses is to t- sell them in stock for stock transactions, so that when you sh- when you swap a stock, you actually don't have a you don't have a taxable event. So he's done this for years and years and years, built up an empire, and he's got stakes in all these different things. And uh, in 2007, he traded a bunch of very low basis stock in Time Warner back to Time Warner in exchange for the ownership of the Atlanta Braves. Well, last month, they uh, they took the Atlanta Braves and they spun them out to Liberty shareholders. So now you can buy a piece of the Atlanta Braves. So uh, do you want to talk anything about there? Should we go into sure. valuation? Yeah, no, we, we ended up with some shares. Uh, we own the predecessor stock. Um, and I'll say this in the disclosure, but we're shareholders of this as well. Um, yeah, no, I think the vast majority of people underestimate uh, just intuit uh, and the significance of tax that is incorrect, that tax efficiency is far more important. Some investors do things just for the sake of minimizing taxes. Uh, the Zell deal with the, the, the Zell deal with uh, Tribune could be blamed uh, for doing that, and that can be a mistake too. But John Malone tends to get these things just right. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we were actually on the phone with Liberty earlier today and thinking about kind of what the next steps might be. Yep, yep. So uh, why don't we walk through first the valuation? Because it's sure. a very complex situation. So right mm-hmm. now they've got about 34 million shares yep. outstanding. They're doing a rights offering that they'll that will happen next week. And we'll just assume that's value neutral and ignore that for now. But uh, they have 16 – the shares trade for $16.50. And – what do you get for uh, what do you get for that sixteen dollars and fifty cents? Well, first you get a stadium plus a mixed use development around their stadium mm-hmm. that they are working on. Uh, if you value those two kind of at cost, they're worth about six hundred seventy million. So those two alone would cover all the debt in the business plus about eleven dollar in value in value for the shares. So that's eleven of the sixteen fifty. So for five dollars and fifty cents, or about one hundred sixty eight million on. 34 million shares, you're buying the Atlanta Braves. And what do you get there? And uh, you get the Atlanta Braves, the team itself, but you also get their ownership in MLB and a very little interesting ownership in MLB's technology division. And why don't you talk a little bit about that, Chris? Sure. It's something that might IPO. Uh, It could be worth as much as $3 billion. Uh, Our sense from the company today wasn't that there's a specific 
imminent catalyst or plan mm-hmm. uh, that they know more than we do at this point. But it'll probably be monetized at some point in the future, and the Braves are part owner of it. Yeah, so the Braves own a 30th of MLB. Mm-hmm. So through MLB, they own a 30th of MLB. I believe it's MLB BAM or L- MLB Online Media or something. Mm-hmm. So if you kind of do the math there, a 30th of something that's valued at $3 billion, that would be worth another $2 to $2.50 mm-hmm. per share. Uh, very interesting. Do we know if it's going to IPO? No. They don't control it. Their investor relations team was pretty clear. Like, we don't know what's going to happen, but it's very interesting. Uh, so if you do that, you could get another $2 and $2.50 per share. And then the Braves themselves are probably worth at least $500 million. Uh Forbes put the Braves plus the Braves Stadium at about $1.1, $1.2 billion. So the Braves themselves are probably worth $500 million. That's another $12 per share. Add it all up and we get to $25 per share in value versus a current price of $16.50. Very interesting. Go ahead. Also, I would say that the Forbes estimates have been uh, actually quite good in the past, but have underestimated transactions, which I tend to focus on, look at deal comps, mm-hmm. uh, by 30 to 40%. So yep. there's a lot more there if an eccentric billionaire who wants to own a baseball team comes in at some point in the future. Uh, a countervailing force, of course, is tax. But my favorite tax guy, Dr. John Malone, has monthly meetings that he sits at the head of the boardroom <laughs> trying to make sure he never pays any. And I think that as a fiduciary and morally, because it's so squandered, that uh, zero is the right amount to pay. Here's the right amount to pay for taxes. But why don't we talk a little bit about the uh, the eccentric billionaire thing? I think one of the things that over the past 30 years we've seen is these type of trophy assets yeah. get valued hu- at huge premiums to what any rational being mm-hmm. would think they should go for. And in many ways, I think having the Braves as a publicly traded company is uh, inefficient because a trophy par- property, part of owning it is being able to point to all your friends and saying like, hey, I own the Atlanta Braves. So I'd be very surprised if there wasn't an Atlanta billionaire who's willing to just lob in a billion or $2 billion bid for the Braves just so they could say, I own the Braves. If, if, if you're trying to show off and keep up with the Joneses and care about such things, you, for the most part, except for things really exotic, top out at cars in the six figures. Uh, you top out a helicopter in the seven figures mm-hmm. and a boat in the eight figures. But if you're trying to blow 10 figures of money... The Braves are where you do it. I mean, this is what you get if you're trying to uh, do something at that scale. There are only 30 baseball teams, and you know they come up for sale so rarely. When one comes up, yeah. the price generally goes high. The Dodgers a few years ago, I believe they they paid for like twice what Forbes thought they were going to go for. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only other part of the story I'll mention, I, I don't think you follow baseball too much. Mm-hmm. I hate baseball, but the Braves are currently the worst team in baseball. Yes. Uh, but they've got a decent farm system. They've got management that has proven they're pretty competent. They're opening a new stadium next year. So if you think like new stadium plus this team turns around, their finances could get better in a hurry. And that could lead to a market uh, revaluation in what the franchise is worth. It could lead to a lot of operating income, profits, everything. The uh, I know nothing about baseball, but I know somebody well who's an expert. Uh, he doesn't say the chance that they win the World Series is zero, but he says it's significantly less than 1%. They're almost already eliminated from the playoffs, and the season is a month long. I will say, though, uh, when Chris found out he owned a part a piece of the Braves, his first question was, can we get access to the Braves TV games? Like, can I watch a, can I watch a game of this team that I own? Mm-hmm. Uh, and did you watch a game yet? I have not seen a game. Um, but uh, but will at some point in the future. You will never be able to drag me to watching a baseball game, just so you know. Uh, anyway, unless we've got anything there, do you want to switch over to REITs? REITs. All right, why don't uh, 
Why don't you kick it off on the REITs? I thought you were going to kick it off on the REITs. You want me to kick it off? Kick it off. Okay. So uh, REITs, on August 31st, uh, major market indexes will no longer put REITs... Indices. Indices. Oh, Chris wrote it down. I'm so bad at pronouncing everything. Uh, They'll no longer put REITs inside of financials as an industry classification. Instead, they'll be broken out into their own classification. And this might sound like small news, small news, but it actually is going to create a lot of demand for REIT shares. And the reason why is you need to understand how benchmarks work in order to understand the reason why. So if you're an active mutual fund manager, and let's take a sector and say the tech sector makes up 10% of the S&P 500, you have to have 10% of your assets plus or minus 1% or 2% in the tech sector. And if the tech sector was made up of three stocks, Microsoft, Apple, and IBM, what you could do is you, if you wanted to avoid IBM, you could just invest all of your all of that 10% into Microsoft and Apple. But you have to have about 10% of your stocks in the tech sector. Well, it turns out professional investors really don't like REIT stocks, and they've been lumped in under financials. So what a lot of professional investors will do is not invest in REIT stocks, and instead they'll put all of their stocks into other financials. You know, I'll buy a little bit of extra JP Morgan or Bank of America, and I'll avoid that REIT stock. Well, now that they'll be their own industry, in uh, their own sector within these, go ahead and say it for me. Indices. In these indices, uh, professional investors will have to invest in these REITs. And it turns out professional investors are very underweight uh, kind of what the, the REIT sector. So we've seen some things that say most funds are underweight REITs by about 50%. Large cap value funds have about 2% of their assets in REITs versus their benchmark at 5%. It's even worse in small cap. Small cap value funds have... Six percent of assets and REITs versus the benchmark at fifteen percent. So, Chris, I say all of these active managers—they're going to have to meet the benchmark. Uh, what do you hear? No, I think I think that that's right. Uh, you have mutual fund guys, and you have to think about it from their perspective, which is very different from ours, which is a a relative value standard and mm-hmm. a one where. If we want to do nothing, we do nothing. If we want to do something, we do something. Uh, and we don't think about underweighting as being negative. We mm. would be out of it or we'd be short it. But uh, for them, yeah, no, if you're supposed to be 10, then you're 9 or then you're 11 yep. if you like it. But to all of these guys, I, uh, there are three and they're going to have to go to six. I hear forced buyers and that mm-hmm. could be a really big boost for the sector. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about why most fund managers kind of traditionally avoid REITs? Yeah, sure. Actually, let me go back to one little thing first, go ahead. which is I think that a lot of my attention turns to the most marginally liquid. You know, what is what is if, where you know usually you think of liquidity as getting out of something that's trading down, but also getting into something that's trading up. What is the most marginal, maybe the smallest float? Where the demand will have the most impact yeah. and could potentially send the stocks up the most. In yep. financials and a couple other areas that I look at when I'm thinking about index reconstitutions or other issues where I hope to exploit the lack of liquidity, I'm looking for a very small float. A, a big one that I think most professional investors or some like kind of quant funds have gotten on this, very small stocks that are about to get added to the Russell 3000. Yep. So the Russell 3000 cutoff is kind of at 150 million. Mm-hmm. So if you drift up from 140 million market cap to $160 million market cap, a lot of funds will kind of front run the indexes, buy it, and then sell it to them at a, at a uh, big premium. And that often becomes self-fulfilling because you're buying puts upward pressure on the market cap, self-fulfilling prophecy that it's going to be big enough to get into the index. Yep. Uh, 
Do you want to talk about that, or do you want to talk sure. about why Fonda? I, I just took reads? off two things that, that are relative. To that. Uh, Willis Lease is one that I've looked at in the past. That is that phenomenon because of large insider holdings, and then the other one is. Uh, uh, mutual hold codes that then are a big part of the market cap and that these indexes, these indices should correct for float. They don't. Yep. It's just based on market cap. And so it's a problem that uh, they've brought upon themselves. So any, I guess what we're saying, and we've said this before, like mechanical force buying can be your friend. If you yep. can front run that mechanical force buying, people have to buy your stock at almost any price to meet what the index says. You can sell it to them at a nice premium that might be in excess of yep. their uh, value. Why don't we talk about why fund managers have avoided REITs? A REIT is not a creature of the free market. It is a creature of statute and a historical anomaly. It is forced to pay out almost all of its profits as distributions, which means from my perspective, looking at the balance sheet, it almost inherently has is undercapitalized. Yes. In a sense. They can't build up a war chest to be flexible and nimble for future opportunities. So a REIT can never say, oh, you know what? Like we've got a lot of, we might be a little over leveraged or something. We want to keep cash on the balance sheet or we see some interesting acquisition opportunities come up. We want to put some profits on the balance sheet and mm-hmm. delever a little bit, get ready for those acquisitions. No, they're forced by law to pay out profits as dividends, which means they're always kind of levered and there's only one way they can grow. I think one of the core responsibilities of a principal is to think about risk management and asset allocation and how aggressively or how conservatively you use your balance sheet. Mm-hmm. When you think about kind of the, the biblical story of seven years of famine and seven years of plenty uh, preceding that, and a lot of managers are supposed to do that. Re- managers are disallowed from thinking in those terms that you might need to preserve capital for the future. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of uh, perpetually... Uh, precarious. Yeah. Or, and I mean, look, they don't have to, it doesn't necessarily mean they've over leveraged their balance sheet. We're just saying they can never keep cash on their they can balance never keep sheet. Cash. But so if most companies want to grow, and if a REIT wants to grow, there's only one way for them to grow, and that's to issue stock. Yep. And because they want to grow and issue stock, uh, there's two things that can happen. A, I want to grow, so I'll issue stock at any price. Doesn't matter if it's way below my net asset value. Uh, we'll just issue it so we can grow. Or B, I need to always keep my stock high. So the company, they kind of become, the stock is the product I have in quotes. Yeah. So do you want to talk? And, and, yeah. and I would say, I mean, one of my, one of my friends who's a, a, a president of a, a REIT and a very smart guy says uh, overly modestly that uh, real estate is finance for C students. Mm-hmm. And maybe said B students. I think he said C students. <laughs> something like that. And, uh, Our real estate investors that, are not going to be happy with no, this. No, but he basically was saying that, uh, you know, that, that, but one of the problems is they always have to stay in a promotional role. Mm-hmm. They're always out there raising new equity financing, which makes the relationship with pre-existing equity holders always a hair uh, adversarial yep. or just a little bit competitive because they always need to be out there promoting, which is very hard if you're trying to be an analyst listening to a promoter. And the other thing I'll mention, so for... I add the stock is the product. For instance, yeah. Realty Income, the ticker is O, which has historically done phenomenally, but they describe themselves as the monthly dividend company. And I think it's very strange for a company to name themselves or describe themselves by their dividend mm-hmm. policy. What if you need to change your dividend for some reason? If you've described yourself as the monthly dividend company, you're kind of disallowing yourself from doing that. So Mm -hmm. it becomes the stock is the product, the dividend is the product. A lot of them also have traditionally had awful corporate governance, Mm -hmm. low insider ownership, entrenched boards, willingness to do deals at any price to grow and increase fees. But not saying realty income had that, but a lot of them have. And that's why professional investors, for the most part, 
have kind of been out on REITs. They also they have a ready ready supply of older, low-information investors, and mm-hmm. so they don't need professional investors in many cases. Exactly, exactly. Uh, let's see, anything else Anything else here? Uh, why don't we talk, is there opportunity to invest in REITs? I think over the past year, REITs have performed very well. Most of them kind of trade at what we would think are high valuations, but I think malls as a space, and you can jump in if you feel differently, malls as a space have underperformed. A lot of reasons for that, you know, Amazon, online shopping, everything. But there might be opportunity there specifically with this force buying coming in. You feel differently or you have any no, other thoughts? No, no. You know, um, this has been something that we've not been that active in. No. Uh, on Seritage, and I can't think of anything else offhand. The, war, gonna, the Warren Buffett's yeah, been off. Yeah, but that's a very a specific yep. situation. Um, as, as really everything we do is a sp- specific, peculiar opportunity. Um, but I can't think of anything else that we've really been doing in the sector. Okay, great. Let's wrap it up there. That's all the time we have for today. Before we hit our disclosures, just a reminder, if you like this podcast, please be sure to follow us and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Audioboom. If you have any feedback feedback for us, please feel free to email it to us at podcast at rangelycapital.com. Uh, in our disclosures, Chris, I believe we're both long, uh, the Braves. Yep. And then you mentioned Willis Lease and Seritage, which you have positions in as well. Correct. Anything else I'm missing? Nope. Great. Uh, that's it for today, and we will talk to you guys next week.